0: Our Father, and our God, we are a people in whose souls a deep, deep, deep work has been done. A work of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to see our sin and our need for a Savior. And it is that soul that has laid hold of the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And for that great work of grace, O oh God, we praise you. We pray that you will indeed draw us closer to yourself in these troubled times where we've had so many reminders of how little control we have over our our world, our circumstances, remind us that there is a King, that there is one who is in control, that there is one who is good, that there is one who forgives sin. There is one who reigns in heaven and earth. And now, O God, to you, to the sovereign King of the universe, we give. It is our delight, our joy, our privilege, and our need to do so. Use every dime for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. A holiday weekend, like Labor Day weekend, is probably not a very good time to launch a new series. But I did. The series was entitled, or is entitled, My King and My God, in that order. Now, you, you, might, um, you, might wanna, you might think that that's out of order. Maybe he should have said, My God and My King. And, and maybe I'm making way too much out of this. That is the order thing. But I, I think it's significant for this reason. It's said a couple of times by David in Psalm 5 and Psalm 84... It's said by a king. A king calls God his king. Um, Because, guys, even kings need a king. Especially kings need a king. You and I need a king. You and I who are non-kings... We need a king. We've got one, you know. Oh yeah, you've got one. Jesus Christ invites people into the kingdom. The kingdom of God. And when you're a part of a kingdom, ladies and gentlemen, it implies certain things. It implies things like obedience and yieldedness. And submission. Now, all of this talk about kings is is by design, because the new series that I launched on Labor Day weekend is about the kingdom of God. Actually, um, l- let me let me mention again the thesis, the theme, the premise, the. The unifying principle of the entire series is this. We are made. We are intended. We are designed to live as glad-hearted subjects of a good king. To whose kingdom we belong. And where our highest good and greatest joy can be found. And that can be found nowhere else. That is, our highest good and greatest joy can be found nowhere else. Although we, um, we try awfully hard, sin is the, the thing that moves us away from our joy. If, if you will allow me to indulge in just a bit of more review... And, and I would encourage you, if you were not here over Labor Day, get the tape or CD or whatever it is. You, you probably need to listen to this because we need to be all on the same page. So if you didn't hear episode number one, get the tape. It'll cost you three bucks. Or you can listen to it online. That's free. But you probably need to listen to it because it'll, we're gonna, we're trying to move as a congregation onto the same page. Well, um, what I'm saying in essence is, Christians belong to one kingdom, but we um we live as resident aliens of an entirely different kingdom. if I could get the, the 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 um the kingdom to which in in which we live I need that first slide there's the um the kingdom in which we the, that we live it has values and rules that are that are that are important things like uh, portfolio and career and prestige and position and fame and security and and beauty and sex and all those things are very important in that kingdom. But we, although we live in that one, we belong to another one. Another one that is far different. It's what Augustine called the city of man. But this is the city of God. And and the rules and the values in this one, they're vastly different. Things over here where humility and self-control and joy and wisdom and obedience and service. We live in one kingdom, but we belong to another kingdom. It's like two humanities that are growing up side by side. And and on most occasions we can hardly tell the difference between them, and so we end up we end up looking like this. We end up looking like this amalgamation, this strange mixture, this strange um, combination of both kingdoms, such that most people couldn't tell us from the people who live in the other kingdom. We're, we're nothing more than well, it, it appears that we're nothing more. Then good law-abiding citizens that have added church attendance to their schedule. Because although we belong to one kingdom, we live in the other. And, and what happens is we combine those two and end up with a mess on our hands. Gang, Christianity is a kingdom. A kingdom within a kingdom. And and a separation of those two kingdoms will be effected only when Jesus comes again. But until then, until then, ladies and gentlemen, what the the New Testament calls the close of the age, the ones who suffer because of this mixture and and this merger of the two kingdoms, the ones who suffer are, are, are us. Because as I said, we are designed, we are intended, we are meant to live as glad-hearted subjects of a good king, to whose kingdom we belong, and it's there where our joy can be found and nowhere else. Now... At this moment, I need for you to kind of press a pause button, because i got to take you down a side road. And I hate to do this, because this is where I usually lose you. But I need to take you down a side road, if you'll bear with me just for a moment, because there's this has got to be said. Throughout the history of the Christian church, one of the more frequent responses to this two-kingdom idea is a very unfortunate Dualism. And and by that I mean this. God's people who know that they belong to the Lord Jesus look at that other kingdom and their response has often been to sound the alarm and retreat. The whole monastic movement, ladies and gentlemen, the whole monastery and monks, you know, the monks thing, that whole movement was designed to try and avoid... The the defilements of that other kingdom. Now, we don't have too many monasteries anymore, and we certainly don't live in one. But we do the same thing today. Gang, we have what is known, and I think you know this, as the Christian yellow pages. We have Christian yellow pages. Um, I I read in a a brochure for a Christian college, a, a line in that brochure said this, and if I'm lying, I'm dying, but the, 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 there was a piece of description of this Christian college in this brochure and it said this we are located 50 miles from any known sin uh, well, I sure couldn't go there because you know I'd bring mine with me but, but we're located 50 miles from any known sin get away from it retreat and we, we, you end up creating this fortress mentality an us versus them gang our challenge was not to retreat from that culture but to win it to reform it sure there's a, there's a lot of bad stuff in that kingdom there always has been and um In response to it, the last thing we ought to do is sound some kind of horn of retreat, while at the same time remembering that we don't belong to that. We belong to a a, a new and different king whose values and rules um, contradict that other kingdom. But in the midst of this series, ladies and gentlemen, I say all of that to say this. Do not hear me saying, retreat. Do not hear me calling you to retreat from this culture. I am not, I'm saying the very opposite of that. I am not trying to produce that Christian dualism stuff. Gang, we are against the world for the world. The goal is to reform it. The goal is to win it, not to wall ourselves out from it. Now, that's the side road. Now, press the play button, and let's go back to the, the main road of this, this series. Gang, my goal in this series is to affect your loves. The difference between the two kingdoms is the difference between loves. Augustine said that moral character is not assessed by what a man knows, by, but by what a man loves. Change a man's loves and you change men. If we can change your beauties, that is, change the way you define beauty, we can change you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a task that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. You know, when you think about what I'm standing up here trying to do, it's its downright ludicrous. I'm trying to change you. And, and, and I need as much change as you do. The changer needs to be changed. But I am asking God, indeed, to change us all. And to do that, I want to address your loves. Should God the Holy Spirit see fit, we'll be changed people. Now, two weeks ago, I, I, I made this suggestion in an effort to change loves, in an effort to change beauties, I made this suggestion, one which I hope will be just among many other suggestions I'll have for you. But I made this suggestion. My suggestion was, get out of the shire. Now, if you weren't here, you don't know what I'm talking about, so let me do that real quick. I was referring to the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy where the two heroes were Samwise Gamgee and, and Frodo, and they lived in the Shire, and they loved life in the Shire, and they loved the food of the Shire, and the women of the Shire, and life in the Shire, and, and living in the Shire. They loved it all. And, but of course, they had to leave the Shire to go accomplish this great thing. And they, they left the Shire, and they accomplished a great thing. You remember? And um, when they came back to the Shire, they were different men. The shire looked different to them, and they looked different to the shire. And and um, once they left the shire, life got mm, yeah more difficult indeed. But that's where they experienced deliverance after deliverance after deliverance. That's where life became meaningful and rich and exhilarating for them. Outside the shire. I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm I'm calling scaffolding, that while we live life in the shire, we build underneath us this scaffolding of routine, of, of schedule, and of the predictable, and of the safe, and of the comfortable. And it's that scaffolding that prevents us from experiencing this wild adventure of following God. Our routine has turned the unpredictable God into a, to a stale, cozy, safe, boring thing that some of us call life. And down deep, down where only you and God go. You know it's stale. And it's that staleness that, that urges us to import a little bit of excitement into our lives. And the only place we know to look, the only place we know where excitement is talked about is over in that other kingdom and so we um trying to address our own staleness we we find ourselves some expensive time consuming hobby or we um we have an affair or we buy some new gadget or we uh we get hooked on porn. None of that because we're so terribly wicked, although we're, we're plenty wicked. But it's about all we know to do. We sense it's stale and it's about all we know to do. is to try and borrow something from the wrong kingdom. And, and thus we insulate ourselves from joy because our, our search for joy is took us to the wrong place, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I, I suggested two weeks ago that you plan right now, right now, you plan to go on a missions trip with, with Gracie Van in the next 12 months. I still say that. And that's a good step. But that's not the solution. and And I hope you know that. I hope you know that I know that. That's not the solution. Gang, I, I, I've been on plenty of mission trips. And maybe once a year I disengage from this American culture. And, and every time when I return, the most surprising thing that I realize is how quickly I can rebuild the same scaffolding underneath me. I turn on my television and, and I listen to all the the innuendos and the suggestive comments and the canned laughter. And, and, I, and I watched those, those commercials that promised me some kind of sexual conquest if I drink a certain beer. Or they, they, they promised me some kind of professional esteem if I drive a certain car. My, my first day back. Modern culture begins to sink its claws into me all over again. And a few days later, I'm breathing the same air of lust and consumerism and selfishness and ambition. And it all seems so normal. No, no, ladies and gentlemen, a trip to Guatemala or a trip trip to uh, India or a trip to Hungary, that's not going to do it. It requires a change of loves, a change of how I define beauty. But for the Christian, life begins to shift when we refuse to breathe the, the carnal air that envelops us we we seek to to live according to rules and values of an invisible world of an invisible kingdom even while we live in the one that's visible we realize that the whole direction of modern life is geared to move us away from god and thus away from joy one of the men that that i so admire who i would call an escapee he's He's gotten away from it. His name is Thomas Merton. And Thomas Merton said this. Everything in modern city life is calculated to keep man from entering into himself and thinking about spiritual things. Even with the best of intentions, a spiritual man finds himself exhausted and deadened and debased. By the constant noise of machines and loudspeakers, the dead air and the glaring lights of offices and shops, the everlasting suggestions of advertising and propaganda. That's true, isn't it? You know, gang, consumer advertising thrives on our longing to be something different than we are. Now, some of you are sitting out there saying, is he ever going to read from the Bible to us? Yeah, right now. Get your Bibles and I want to read you a few verses out of Matthew 9 and Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. I'll read through verse 37 and we'll skip to chapter 10. Matthew 9, 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, bring pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, hold on to that. Skip over with me to chapter 10. I want to begin reading verse 34. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace. But a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Gang, let me tell you what this is all about. The, the, this, this episode begins with Jesus showing up on the land, uh, out in the the uh, countryside, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then he, he, he recognizes his audience as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he bemoans the fact that there are so few laborers for this harvest. The very next thing you get in chapter 10 as it opens is a list of 12 men that he appointed. That is... There's a, so too few laborers, and so he appoints 12. And then he sends them out. But before he sends them out, he preaches this sermon to, him that begin, to them that begins in verse 5. And he says great things about not taking any money and not doing this and leave that town. And if they don't receive you, don't do that and don't go over there. And then as he draws this sermon to a close... He makes some statements, ladies and gentlemen, that if we ever were to believe them, it just might change us. That is if we were to ever to believe them. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, he gives us a definition of life. In verse 39, chapter 10, he says, the man who finds his life will lose it. But any man who loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. Gang, there is a craving within us, all of us, something that I call the call of the wild. But there is a craving to live more deeply. To live more meaningfully, to live more eternally. And when we sense it, one of the more frequent responses to sensing it is that we we go shopping, and we go buy something else. We pick up these little messages from the other kingdom. We pick up these little messages uh, as to how joy could be found or, or where joy is located. And so we go over there. Or we, um, we buy something new. And for a time, there is a spike in joy. But after a while... short while, joy begins to wane and we're left with the dryness all over again. We're like kids on Christmas morning who at 9 a.m. have got toys galore and they're just as excited as they can be and by 10 o'clock that night, they're bored with that stuff. We're like a college student that bought a new CD, a new musical CD and they listen to it for five or six times, and then they wonder, why did I buy that? Why not spend $18 on that? It's not that we move into full-scale depression. But there's no buoyancy in our spirit. There's, um, there's no bounce in our step. There's no wind in our sails. It's like we're driving a car with four tires with no air in them. We're just going through motions. Because because we crave to be more, we've become less. We moved another step away from joy. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Please. There is one statement in the New Testament that Jesus makes that is repeated more frequently than any other statement that Jesus makes. You know what it is? It's verse 39. If you find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it you know i read that verse and i wonder okay okay how am i supposed to lose my life you know i don't live in a monastery neither do you you know i don't suffer very much persecution for my faith in christ and i don't i don't think you do either and here's what i've concluded ladies and gentlemen that i can take the principle of 39 verse 39 and i can apply it in far less dramatic ways but i can apply it i can apply it in 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 small, mundane acts of self-denial. I've concluded, gang, that, that when I choose to follow Jesus Christ in ways that are large or small, what seems to be a sacrifice actually turns into a benefit for me. I'm the one who benefits. For instance, when I swallow my pride, and I go apologize to someone that I've offended. I feel this flood of relief. When, when I give anonymously as Jesus told me to give. I, I experience this delight. i, I got to tell you this story. David Montague tells this story about... Him and his wife, they shop at a certain schnooks here in town. And it's the schnooks over on Quince and Hickory Hill. Right, That schnook's right in there. And uh they they would they go through the this lane and they, they began to strike up a friendship with a checker there at Schnooks and, and uh over the months they kinda of developed a relationship with her and they found that she'd had a really a hard life and so every time they went to Schnooks, they would get into her lane because they wanted to minister to her. And and the longer they shopped there, the more they closer they got to the woman and the more they found out about her, and it was really a sad tale. She was a single mother and and uh, she was a checker at Chinook's. And so they would stand in line. It didn't make any difference. if It was shorter ones down there. They stood in her line because they wanted to be checked up by her. And so one day, his, her wife, uh, David's wife, had bought the groceries and, and had left. And as she was driving out, the girl, the checker, was driving in. And um, the, the wife, Mrs. Montague, noticed that the, the window in the car, the back, not the windshield, but the back window was out. And it was filled with cardboard and, you know, tape and all that business. And so she goes home and she says, David, we need to replace that, wind, that that, window. And so they go to the store manager and they say, let me tell you what we want to do. We don't want her to know this. They just, uh, uh, what could you tell us her schedule so that we can be here and So they, they, they hooked it all up. So one day they're, they're, they're in the parking lot at noon and sure enough, here comes the little checker who's coming onto her shift at noon. And so they had arranged with this windshield place to come in there, this mobile windshield place, to come in there and replace the windshield, the, the back windshield, whatever that thing's called, and, and um, without her knowing it. So she gets off the uh, work that night, and she comes to her car, and there's the window replaced. And uh, about a month later, they didn't want her to know who did it, but she found out, I, I guess from the store manager, I don't know. But they receive a letter. From this girl, you know, thanking them and saying, you know, she's a Christian and she had prayed that God would provide the money necessary to fix that thing. Because she had the kids in the car and all that business. And David Montague's wife looked at him and said, Dave, we could have kept that $400 in our checking account. Or we could have spent it like that. Tell me, which gives you more satisfaction? Ladies and gentlemen, answer that question for heaven's sakes. Which gives you more satisfaction? Piling up more and more money? Is that what it's all about, guys? You know, when I resist temptation and I Choose rather to invest in the hard work of marriage. I gain. And when I hold my tongue from slander, I feel cleaner. Losing my life has also meant a constant scrutiny over how I spend the money that God has provided for me. Go buy another iPod, for God's sake, and see if that will bring it. See if that will do it. You think it will? You know it won't. Gang, that other kingdom is constantly bombarding me with, with signals that, that are sensual and enticing God's kingdom is quiet and invisible and and even ephemeral. Every day, every day the other kingdom tempts me to lust and to consume and to to exploit and to dominate. In every act of self-denial is a little bit of resistance to the other kingdom. Every act of giving and serving and denying is a little victory for the kingdom of God. Every act of denial is a little act of losing my life. And Jesus doesn't ask me to do that, ladies and gentlemen, because it's a sense of duty. His statement contains this paradoxical suggestion That if we lose our lives for His sake, we will find them in the very process of losing them. It's when I lose them that I find joy. You believe that? You know, there's a word in the English language that, that we really like. It's the word ecstasy. Uh, I, I'll quit after this, I promise. Um, but I'm going to have to cut out a whole page. I just want you to know. Um, there's, a, there's a word in the English language that we really like. It's the word ecstasy. You know, we've got a drug named ecstasy. You know, there's clubs named ecstasy. Ecstasy comes from two Greek words. It comes from a little preposition ex, which means out of or apart from, and stasis, which means to stand. The word literally means to stand apart from. It reminded me of a play that Shakespeare has, um, one of his less known plays, one of Shakespeare's less known plays. And it's called it's entitled Measure for Measure. It's taken from a a passage out of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, Measure for Measure, this play is about, it's, it's, it's located in ancient Vienna. And it was a period in Vienna's history, or at least in the play it was, where there's a lot of immorality and crime and wickedness that's unfolding in the city of of, um, of Vienna. And the, the, the mayor of Vienna was a guy by the name of Angelo. And Angelo um, was just as wicked as anybody else, but to try and curry the favor of the... Um, of the law and order crowd, he decided that he was going to enforce a long since forgotten law that made sexual sin a capital offense. So just because he wanted to, you know, throw a bone to the law and order crowd, he was going to he was going to enforce that law. And so he he finds this guy who has impregnated his girlfriend and he arrests him. his name is Claudio. And he's going to put Claudio to death because Claudio had violated this this terrible uh, law. And so Angelo's hypocrisy gets exposed when he gets a visit from Claudio, the guy that's gonna die, Claudio's sister, Isabella. And Isabella is this young, beautiful woman who has committed herself to a convent. And so Angelo, Angelo, I mean, or Angelo, the mayor, is smitten by her beauty and offers her this cynical deal. If you will become my secret lover, (laughs) I'll commute the sentence of your brother and set him free. And so the play, much of the play, is played out with this Isabella agonizing over her principles she is impaled on the horns of this dilemma the dilemma of her scruples over purity and her love for her brother and as she as she agonizes in front of the audience there is this the scenes of, of decadence and wickedness in vienna that are going on in the background of the play and in the end she decides she's going to hold on to her scruples even if it means letting her brother die by the way through some a series of plot twists the angelo is is Murdered and, and Claudio, Cetri. but But the point of the play is this. In an evil time, will anyone stand? In an evil day, will anyone experience ecstasy? Must find joy. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Do you believe that? Our Father, I do pray that you will plant that truth deep in our souls, that we'll never get over it. We'll never get around it. We'll never get by it. All we can do is find more and more ways where we can lose our lives. Father, if you have brought people in here who have not yet met the Savior, might they meet him in all of his saving beauty now? We ask it for Jesus' sake.